and welcome to the Academy Security's Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Robinson, and I'm joined today by Rachel Washburn, Peter Chur, and our advisory board member, Brigadier General Tony Tata. Today, we are excited to talk about Iran threatening to close the Straits of Hormuz, China, and the ever-developing trade war, and then a brief update on North Korea. Rachel, can you lead us off? General Tata, I pose the initial question to you. Very recently, Iran came out and threatened to shut down the Straits of Hormuz uh, for any sort of safe passage of oil. They threatened this in the past. Only once did they successfully militarize the Straits during the Iran-Iraq war over 30 years ago. How do you take this uh, most recent threat? Rachel, I think there are two things really happening here. One is that the Iranian mullahs are under intense pressure domestically from a uh, groundswell of grassroots uh, revolution happening there in the wake of the cancellation of the Iran nuclear deal. And the people in Iran see a strategic opening uh, with America allied with them uh, against the mullahs. So that's, that's the first thing that uh, sets the strategic and domestic context within Iran. And I think the second thing is that the mullahs are attempting to play geopolitically against the United States by threatening the Straits of Hormuz. Gas prices have been up. That would create more economic tension in the West uh, if uh, the Straits of Hormuz are threatened and it will artificially drive up oil prices and And, of course, uh, the uh, United States has uh, promised to reduce the uh, amount of uh, oil that uh, we export out of that region, and uh, we continue to be more self-sufficient. So uh, there's a lot of things happening there, and and I think that's uh, the two key things are that Iran is sort of lashing out at the West and uh, in the wake of the Iran nuclear deal and trying to divert attention from its domestic problems. Sir, a follow-up question. Since Iran made this threat, CENTCOM has come out and said they're ready to respond if necessary. They're prepared to ensure the safe passage of commerce through the straits. What would a military deterrent or response look like if Iran tried to follow up on their threat? Yeah, I, I mean, we've had to do this before. The Straits of Hormuz are international waters, and uh, one of our tenets of diplomacy is um, that we, uh, you know, our Navy primarily uh, is uh, here to secure passage of all commerce, and our U.S. Navy would uh, go into the Persian Gulf there and, and uh, make sure that uh, we are um, getting our cargo and oil and everything else in and out of the Persian Gulf. And um, that's uh, exactly what our U.S. Navy is designed to do. They've done it before, and they'll do it again. Peter, what are you seeing from your perspective? Are the markets taking this threat seriously? I think they're discounting it fairly heavily for a lot of the reasons the general said. But I think one thing also to remember is this threat is nowhere near as powerful as it would have been five or even ten years ago. Like the U.S. has now actually been a net energy exporter. We are very close to being self-sufficient domestically. Clearly, it would hurt at the pumps, and that hit, you know, the consumer a little bit. But at the same time, you know, the energy businesses here will benefit greatly. A spike in energy prices would actually probably help fuel some of these liquid natural gas facilities that we're trying to build out. 
So I don't think it is the sort of damaging impact that it used to have to the U.S., largely because we've headed so far towards energy independence. I have definitely viewed that higher oil prices lately have been better for the U.S. economy rather than worse because of how it flows through the energy industry and those jobs. We saw that a little bit in 2015 when energy fell off a cliff, and that actually hurt the U.S. economy, hurt the stock market. So I just don't think the threat is as important as it once would have been, which is another reason it's not roiling markets the way it would have. Peter, I pose the next question to you. Obviously, the impending trade war with China has been top of mind for a while. We've spoken at length about it here on this podcast. You've discussed it with our clients on a regular basis. Now, as of last night, the first formal tariffs were levied against China. What are your thoughts now that the trade war has officially begun? You know, in some ways, it's kind of a relief that it's actually here. So markets are kind of downplaying it right now. What I'm really looking for is signs. One is I firmly believe we will get a deal. The question to me is, will we get a good deal? And to me, a good deal really comes down to intellectual property right protection and reciprocal access. A bad deal to me would be something where we get some big headline number that sounds great that China agrees to buy a bunch of our products going forward, but it's really things that we're going to be buying anyway. So energy, like liquid natural gas, as we've discussed already in the podcast, um, eggs or soybeans. So we don't really get much of a benefit. If we take something like that, I think markets will act poorly. What this has been intended to do and so far seems to be doing is bringing China to the table. And if we can have a real fight and get some, you know, make some groundwork and progress on intellectual property rights, this could actually turn out to be a very good thing for the markets. General Tata, Peter brings up a really interesting point. For so much of the discussion around intellectual property, business has been the focus, but there's a national security concern as well. China's been investing in new emerging technologies that have a defense application. Sir, what do you see as the most significant threat when it comes to intellectual property theft by China? I think there are two things that we really need to look at. One is the IP that we develop here and how it gets cloned uh, in uh, China in particular and then uh, sold back to us in their products. Uh, with um, uh, malware or spyware on it that uh, allows for their eavesdropping and um, uh, algorithms to report back to them on on uh, our usage and patterns and so forth, if not more specific than that. Uh, and the second thing is, uh, you know, our ability to maintain uh, a window into what, China and other peer competitors are doing uh, from a technology standpoint uh, so that we don't fall behind uh, because our bureaucracies and and uh, government can be very lethargic and slow to respond the Federal Communications Commission and, and those types of agencies are are by nature regulatory and protective and bureaucracies and so um, today's tech environment is very flat, uh, very, very much um, a rapid development and innovation uh, type of environment. And um, to the extent that China has uh, military brigades whose job it is to hack and produce disinformation and misinformation and so forth, um, the same with Russia, quite frankly, um, there are other nations out there 
that are far more organized than we are in the offensive um, uh, cyber capability and the development of the techno- technology to conduct that cyber capability. Uh, we just made our cyber command a combatant command, a four-star command, and uh, that's a step in the right direction, but still there's a long leap uh, to catch up with China and Russia on the uh, development of offensive and defensive um, cyber capabilities. Sir, you used the term more organized when describing some of our competitors. Do you see them as more advanced or just improving on their capabilities faster than us? I I think uh, they're improving at a faster rate, and I think that they are more organized and intent um, or deliberate in in their intent uh, with what they're doing. Uh, we in the United States have a um, caution when we approach offensive cyber operations, for example. Uh, the um, Russia and China militaries do not have that same red flag. Uh, they are wide open and full bore. And so understanding the, the uh, domain in which we're operating is important and so from a technology standpoint uh, they are at least on par with us and from a um, capability and intent standpoint they they have more nefarious intent with regard to uh, offensive cyber so uh, they're they're inside our wires they're they're stealing information Uh, they are probing, and they can uh, penetrate into uh, Department of Defense uh, or government agencies. They can penetrate into banks. They can penetrate into hospitals. They can penetrate into power grid systems. They've demonstrated these capabilities. Uh, shoot, 15-year-old kids have demonstrated these capabilities. So the, the um, uh, defensive and offensive capabilities of the United States, I think, is playing catch-up right now to uh, the uh, uh, offensive and uh, nature of China, North Korea, uh, Russia, um, and Iran, quite frankly. This is something our geopolitical intelligence group discusses a lot, how cyber is this ungoverned domain of war, and the United States is obviously working hard to develop policy about what the appropriate response is to malicious cyber attacks, but it's complicated and it's unconventional. Uh, Sir, what do you see as the appropriate response to a cyber threat or an offensive cyber action by another nation, state, or uh, individual actors? So so my views are that asymmetric um, uh, attacks and capabilities deserve asymmetric uh, responses. And so if for example, we can identify um, the IP address uh, from which an attack occurred in some remote village in China. There's no reason we can't have a kinetic event happen on that IP address. It's a risky game, but until we begin to leverage our full breadth of capabilities, we have to think about this in an asymmetric way 
these cyber attacks are so effective precisely because there's no retaliation. And the retaliation can be in the cyber domain, and it, uh, but it's mostly from a U.S. standpoint a defensive type of effort as opposed to an offensive effort. And the uh, principles of the United States takes us uh, – it, it takes us a while to get to reconcile with ourselves uh, whether or not we want to do offensive cyber where we are doing the types of things that, you know, Russia and China have done to us. And we uh, either, you know, play rope-a-dope like Muhammad Ali and just take the blows and try to survive it and stand on the moral high ground, or we, we get into the game. And it's a real dilemma. And, and there, if we decide to get into that game, uh, we need to leverage the full breadth of our capabilities uh, against uh, these hackers and uh, cyber teams. They're, they're very organized military units that are doing this. Hey, Rachel, can I mention anything here? Yeah, Peter, uh, interested in your thoughts. Yeah, I think one thing that General's comments really should highlight is even going back to the trade war, we act as a nation in the trade war, and yet we have corporations, domestic, you know, domiciled here, that may not have the exact same interests as, you know, the government policy. Whereas the people that we are facing, China, there really is limited any separation between the nation and the companies that they have. So when we're dealing with these, you know, discussions about trade war, I think that's one of the reasons we've got to this point is we are not dealing with an entity that looks like us or Western Europe, where the countries and corporations are separate, they act as one. And I think the same thing with Russia. So that's why I think cyber really ties out into the intellectual property and other things. And that's why it's such a key to fight for that in these trade wars, because we're really dealing with an entity that's bigger than us in that respect, where it is the corporation and the country dealing together, where we are still somewhat separate and not, you know, acting in a cohesive fashion. Yeah, Peter, I think that's exactly right and really ties in well to uh, what General Chia was saying about how some of our, as we develop policy and, and these new systems, they're inherently tied to some bureaucratic limitations uh, that sometimes make us, make our progress slower than some of our foes. Added complication to our negotiations with China is their influence over North Korea now that Secretary Pompeo is actively trying to flesh out some of the terms and the metrics post-Singapore summit, what do you want to see come out of his engagements? Yeah, I think uh, what we're seeing here is a continuation of a negotiation. And we have to remember that there has not been a missile fired in uh, something like nine months, and uh, there has not been a nuclear uh, bomb detonated for over a year now. Uh, so we've had initial success in the negotiations. Uh, of course, the president held his uh, summit there uh, in Singapore with Kim Jong-un. There's a very wave-top-level agreement was reached um, about total denuclearization and then some comments about economic uh, support of North Korea. Now I think uh, you know the hard work is going into uh, trying to nail down exactly what everybody's going to do, 
um, how we're going to get in there and have verifiable inspections. Uh, there was this leak from the CIA of, of a picture that can be interpreted a million different ways, but this is the harm of the political environment we face today is that you have people uh, that will risk their our national security and their government positions to make a statement. So this leak of this picture and then the, you know, the anonymous coding that it was um, a North Korean nuclear site that has been improved upon could be accurate or it could be just uh, more disinformation. And that's the problem that goes back to the earlier discussion we had where it's you really have to take a step back and say, is this real or is this something that somebody is uh, trying to influence, an influence operation? Uh, you've got someone that could be trying to you know, harm the administration. It could be trying to harm the country. Or it could be somebody who's a whistleblower and saying, hey, look, this is still happening. That that wouldn't necessarily rise to the level of whistleblowing. That's, that's a leak, and it damages national security. But uh, all of that with, uh, notwithstanding, Pompeo is over there right now working through the details, and I think you know, Mike Pompeo is a smart man, and he's he's a good man, and and he's going to try to um, bring home a very good deal for the United States and the world. This was a problem that you know presidents uh, have have pretty much ignored without any kind of uh, positive uh, result, and so we can all be hopeful that what's happening here is. Pompeo will nail down the specifics of a verifiable deal, and, you know, North Korea will deserve something in return, which is, you know, some kind of economic assistance. Um, you know, if you think about how underdeveloped that country is, it could be a boon for the United States uh, companies, uh, construction and those types of things, um, if, if indeed we do reach some kind of deal that allows us to get in there and and uh, hammer out uh, uh, a deal and, and begin to revitalize that nation. What terms would you like to see specifically come out of the continued negotiations with North Korea? I think, Rachel, and specifically what I would like to see is unfettered access to all of the nuclear sites in North Korea would be one of of our inspectors, not just international inspectors, because they're just as corrupt as uh, the next genius. And uh, I I would also like to see um, an inspection of their chemical and biological warfare capabilities, because there is some suspicion that that they have uh, capacity there, and so we need to be careful with that. From an international security perspective, um, the North Korean government um, needs to give us, uh, led by us and, the, you know, the international community, access to all of these sites. Meanwhile, we can promise them, whether it's, um, you know, highways or bridges or, um, you know, whatever type of um, infrastructure they need, airports, uh, we can we can begin to 
you know, help them in that regard. You know, we need to remember that Kim Jong-un came into power with two goals. One was the nuclear power. One was to have a booming economy. Well, there's no way he's going to have a booming economy if he tries to remain a nuclear power. So my, my suspicion all along has been that he's going to try to trade the nuclear power off to get as much economic benefit as he can. And so I would like to see that. I would like to for that to be the quid pro quo. Get rid of your nukes, your Tim, your bio, and we'll come in and we'll build and and uh, provide um, you the infrastructure you need to have a prosperous economy because they're the same people as South Korea. Uh, there are families that are still divided from, you know, the decades of old war there. And, and uh, it would be nice to ultimately reunify that peninsula and make it one people. Thank you, General Tata, Rachel, and Peter for your contributions to this conversation. And thank you to our listeners for taking the time. If you have any questions about the material we discussed today, or if you have an interest in engaging with our geopolitical and macro strategy experts directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. That's info at academysecurities.com. This is Andy Robinson, your host. Look forward to speaking with you next week.